0: The old way as told to us the way we understand it also does not reveal all of the truth of the trajectory of the evolution of knowledge. The old way the old way as told to us as told to us as told to us the way we understand it also does not reveal all of the truth of the trajectory of the evolution of knowledge.
1: About a year ago, I was invited to join a task force. That's right, a task force, which no matter what it was for, I was obviously on board. In my tiny, over-television brain, we'd ride in a black van and each have special skills that got us out of sticky situations. It promised to become the toughest-sounding thing on my resume. The group not so much the vigilante gang i had envisioned but more impressive in real life set out to dig into the topic of broadening participation through informal stem learning i know this sounds wonkish already let me explain close your eyes and think for a second about the most wonder-filled experiences that you've had exploring science math technology and engineering maybe it was in school But there's also a really good chance that it was at a science museum in an after-school program, maybe even with a chemistry set that you got as a gift. Here's the thing, these other venues for STEM learning, these are the ones that often become the doorway to a participatory identity in these subjects, or not, as we're finding out. That participatory identity is what most often leads to a life in these disciplines working on the challenges we face locally and globally the hurdles of our time but we have a problem broadening participation is a fancy way of considering not just who's invited into these identities but how we communicate who and how and where stem happens there's the old school it's deficit-based and the idea in short is that someone more expert in a lab coat can fill us with science knowledge if we've earned the privilege. And there's the new school, where science and its sister subjects are all around us, where questions, not answers, propel us forward, and where the experts one day are as omnirepresentational as humanity itself. This episode is important groundwork for understanding some of the nuance of broadening participation. This interview is with experts like these.
0: Jamie Bell, Project Director and Principal Investigator for CASE, the Center for Advancement of Informal Science Education.
2: Cecilia Garibay, Founder and Principal of Garibay Group. Christine Reach, I'm the Vice President of Exhibit Development and Conservation
3: at the Museum of Science Boston. Dale McCready, I'm the Vice President of Audience and Community Engagement at Discovery Center in Murfreesboro, Tennessee.
1: And to Together we dive into the issue. I taped these interviews after a two-day convening of the task force in Washington, DC. Every step of this experience has been an honor and a privilege to be a part of, and I'm really grateful for the chance to contribute and, of course, learn a ton myself. If you're interested in learning more about the task force and its work, I encourage you to check us out through the Center for Advancement of Informal Science CASE website. I'll drop a link in the notes. This is the first of two parts. If you leave this conversation thinking, what on earth is science communication? Have I got a treat? In the next episode, I'll share a short chat I had with Sunshine Menezes, and we tackle the topic and its relationship to all of this. Enjoy the first conversation from the 2018 convening of the Center for Advancement of Informal Science Learning's Task Force on Broadening Participation Through Informal STEM Learning. Enjoy the conversation. This is No Such Thing, a podcast about the promise and reality of learning with technology. I'm Mark Lesser. Guys, thank you so much for doing this, for being on the show. I have a, uh, this is an amazing opportunity for me because I feel like there are uh, rock stars uh, um, among us that I have uh already learned so much from and i mean that very honestly uh i am so honored to be part of this task force but i'll tell the truth when i was first asked to join the broadening participation task force it was because it sounded a lot like a role um it sounded like the a team um like we might get costumes and um (laughs) like task force is pretty official sounding so uh, my first question jamie is um What is this task force? What are we here to do these two days in Alexandria, Virginia? Um, And how did the project sort of, um, where did it come from? What's the origin story?
0: Okay. Well, CASE, uh, as a resource center for the National Science Foundation Advancing Informal STEM Learning Program, um, has always sought some strategies for bringing together Uh, researcher, practitioners, and evaluators in the field, other stakeholders in the field of informal STEM learning, to think about topics of interest and currency that appear in the ASL portfolio through the projects that are proposed and funded, awarded, and not awarded sometimes, Um, to take kind of the the thinking about these topics um, forward, in ways that will inform better practice, better proposals going forward, better research, better research questions. Um, We've always, um, CASE has been charged also always with convening the um, Principal Investigator Meeting, which is a meeting of all those awarded projects that come together every two years. Uh, And in the process of doing those meetings, as well as smaller convenings, um, we've all we've discovered that you know bringing people together is really important, and you can doc, document those kinds of events. Um, but the task force um, idea arose as a kind of a mechanism that seemed designed to um, give more life beyond the convening, uh, and be, you know prior to, during, and beyond the convening uh, to be a, a kind of a generative body of people who would actually do more than just meet and then. Uh, say goodbye and perhaps keep in touch a little bit over online or something like that. There there would actually be products coming out of a task force.
1: Yeah. So, we have to back up and do some vocabulary lesson. Uh, ASL is a a program within the National Science Foundation uh, through which they grant money for, tell us.
0: Informal STEM learning um, settings and experiences, which uh, occur are designed in a variety of uh, settings, uh, including museums, science centers. There's a long list of s- yeah. events, um, uh, citizen science projects, community programs, youth programs, um, cyber learning, gaming, uh, any, any situation or experience where one could learn STEM outside of the formal classroom.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um- outstanding so uh so let's pretend because the folks who listen to this show uh are not in the bubble uh many ma- i i suspect that a lot of researchers will be interested a lot of academics will be interested in, in in what we're up to here but um let's pretend that i'm a guy in the elevator at this hotel and i jump into the elevator and i said jamie what are you here to do can can you state what you just said one more time in in uh Layperson's terms.
0: There's a professional field of people and institutions who design uh, and uh, they design settings and experiences for people of all ages uh, to learn science, technology, engineering, and math in innovative, creative ways outside of formal schooling. And that field has grown exponentially over the past 50 years, at least, if not before, uh, through investments of funders like the National Science Foundation. And so, hence, we have this burgeoning professional field of practitioners who are designers, but also researchers uh, and evaluators and all types of um, professionals who engage in this kind of activity.
1: Great. So Celia, I have a question for you. Uh, um, I actually have two questions for you. I I was hoping that you would describe the the, sort of the makeup of the folks in the room for these two days. And and this, I should mention, has been almost a year-long project, right? Um, So can you describe some of the participants in this? And and, uh, I'll I'll follow up with a a separate question, which uh, gets a, a little bit more in the weeds.
4: Sure. For this particular task force, as Jamie mentioned, it was important to bring together a group of people who were coming really um, from different perspectives, different um, aspects of training, different concerns, but who really could come together around this issue of thinking about what is broadening participation? Mm. What are the issues that we're wrestling with as a field? And then what could we do about that? What might be the generative conversations and products that would come out of that? So it was really important when we convened this task force to cast a wide net and think about who that could be. Uh, And that's part of what's exciting about the task force is that the makeup is actually quite broad. So it's individuals who might be coming from the museum field, museum setting, science centers, Um, They could be exhibit developers. They could be individuals who are really working more in programmatic, developing programmatic experiences. Mm -hmm. There are researchers also who are... um, you know, involved in learning, science learning, and informal environments, and what that looks like. What's the the pedagogy and theory behind that? There are individuals from science communication. We know that that is a field that has been funded by NSF. But conversations between um, individuals who might identify as science, being in the science communication field, and individuals who might identify as being in the term being informal science education. So more like an after school program, or more like a museum. Them, those are um, individuals that have a lot of potential synergies, mm-hmm. but may not be talking as much together. So, part of the strategy was also to make sure that we had individuals with uh, who, who really are in the science communication area and who are thinking about um, potentially the public um, writ large, who are thinking about science and STEM. Uh, topics that are really current Mm -hmm. um, and important socially. And so those are some of the people that um, have come together. So they come from across the country, different kinds of institutions, um, many different kinds of lenses and experiences. And I think that's what makes it so exciting as a task force.
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, So So I want to come back to science communication, because I think a lot of people like me um, when I joined this task force will maybe have heard uh, the, you know, know something about the idea of science communication, but don't really know what science communication is and that it's a field as in in as thriving uh, a way as it is. Um, So I want to come back to that. But but first I want to talk about the the problem that we're working on. Um, you said broadening participation a few times. And um, can you just define for us, you've done this work of broadening participation for a long time. And, and I'm curious for you um, to define what we mean by broadening participation and maybe tell us a little bit about how, ideas about what it means to broaden participation have, have evolved a little bit over time?
4: Yeah, and that's a really good question because even just the term broadening participation, I think it's part of that, as you said, what unpacking terms. I think that is actually a term to unpack and that is in some ways part of what the task force has been doing. So broadening participation as a as a I guess, word or phrase really comes about. And the reason we use it is because that is what is in the National Science Foundation uh, language and guidelines. And so uh, to back up and think about why we use that term or what it yeah. means um is really, I'll go back to the problem, or what is the issue? And the issue is really about engagement in STEM, right? Who participates in science, technology, engineering, and math, and who doesn't? And so it's really looking at um, this idea of, we know that, for example, there are certain underrepresented populations, right? So... uh, Girls and women may not be participating in the same at the same level Uh, communities that might be rural communities or um, economically depressed areas or particular ethnic or cultural um, communities. And so the question is, what is happening there? Mm. And that's really essentially the when we talk about this idea of broadening participation, it's really shorthand for thinking about how do we think about ways to make sure that we create um, and address uh, systemic issues that may be keeping uh, particular individuals from engaging and engaging, I would say, in a broad way. So it's not necessarily about everyone needing to become a scientist. Mm -hmm. Right. But so that's in in many ways what the issue has been tackled that we're tackling really is about.
1: Yeah, so so who historically is a scientist?
4: Right, so that's part of it, right? You you you've hit it at the I think at the heart of it is the conceptions of who we think about who does science, mm-hmm. where does science happen? Yeah. Um, those could be those are pretty narrow, I would say. Uh, if we think about society, most people have the idea that you know what would a scientist look like? Uh, it's probably a man, mm-hmm. probably white, mm-hmm. in a lab coat. In some sterile environment, yeah. right, doing an experiment, yeah. which isn't to say that that isn't one kind of science, but the idea that science is all around us, that uh, you can engage in science in different ways, um, that for example, a perfect one is if you have uh, a family member with a health issue, right, all of a sudden you might actually find yourself needing to um, and wanting to. Um, learn more about a particular topic related to that health issue. So from the conception of broadening participation, I personally would argue that that is someone who is engaging in Mm. science.
1: So I want to, I want to, before, um, before we end this conversation, I want to come back to you and ask uh, for some examples of folks in science who people may not know about, who actually characterize what it is we're after so it's uh you defined sort of one version of what what uh mm-hmm. the scientist looks like historically and i think uh most people listening can identify uh it's one that uh we've we've um you know sort of pollinated through our broadcast media and uh has has just been sort of everywhere um but you all here have a lot of exposure to um, contemporary science and what's really happening out there. And I'm curious um, about some examples of folks who uh, are the the kind of demonstration of who we're hoping young people um, will at least have opportunities uh, to sort of emulate. Before I do, I want to turn to uh, Christine and Dale and, and talk about... Um, you represent uh, Science Museum, Science Children's Museum, correct? Children's so, Museum, I know. Right. And, and Christine, Museum of Science uh, in Boston...
2: Is a science museum that serves everyone from age zero to 100 plus. I've been there
1: and loved it. I just, I, for some reason, I wasn't sure if you guys identified as a as a children's focused museum. We don't. Okay.
2: Um, and in fact, one of the things we intentionally do is try to have a diverse portfolio of options that reach everyone throughout the lifespan.
1: Yeah. Well, I was there in my early 30s and I loved it. Um, so... That says something you're doing, you're doing. You're and doing my five-year-old
2: work. son loves it, right? right? So, so that's perfect. So
1: um, so what do museums care about this issue? Um, and, and I know that that will be potentially different from the perspective of a children's museum, maybe than a science museum. But uh, I'm curious for you both, um, what attracted you to this work? And, and what good do you think we're doing um, on this task force for museums?
2: The first place I would start is I think museums play a pivotal role in our communities in that people within the community look to the museum often for a justification of what is real and what is not real science and what are real and not real representations of science. And so making sure that when we represent science, we are being as broadly inclusive as we can be of broad range of sciences, of um, images of what science participation and science engagement looks like, that's really important. Um, But also making sure that everyone feels welcome and included and empowered within our environment is critically important to us. We think of ourselves as a STEM learning organization, so science, technology, engineering, and math. And so we want um, everyone to feel empowered. And there's something really special about Science museums, and that people are in control of their own learning. So that as they're walking through the exhibit halls, they're going at their own pace. They're doing, they're choosing what they do and do not want to participate in. Mm-hmm. And if we have visitors who feel disempowered, who feel as though the experience is not for them, they just won't engage. Yeah, and they won't learn. Um, if we have visitors who feel as though the organization as a whole doesn't reflect who they are, um, or their lived experiences um, might be, then they won't come, um, and then they don't learn. Yeah. And so we recognize that kind of pivotal role we play in learning, but also that pivotal role in who we say is included. And so everything we do, we try to think about what message we're saying about who is included, who's able to participate, um, what type of learning experience they can have, and making sure we are as broadly as inclusive as possible.
1: Yeah. Is um, so there was a a moment in uh, long ago in my professional life where I was running arts programs for the Wang Center in Boston, what was then the Wang Center, which I think now is City Center for Performing Arts. It may have changed to some other bank now. Who knows? Um, There was at the time the data nationally for who took advantage of. Our space as a, a public art space um, was pretty staggering. There was there was a lot of national data about um, who attends these cultural mm-hmm. institutions, and uh, typically we didn't serve uh, you know certainly within a sort of mile with nearly the um, depth that we serve the suburbs outside of Boston. Um, is that still the case? Is that is that getting better? Um, What should we know about how that relates in terms of broadening participation?
2: It is definitely getting better. Um, Museums are doing a lot of different work to bring in different communities, um, different pathways. So one of the things that's happening in Massachusetts right now, for example, is um, free admission to museums if you have an EBT card. Amazing. Um, And so that is something that Museum of Science and one other organization started in Massachusetts. It was picked up by the Massachusetts Cultural Commission and now it's being spread throughout the state. And we're seeing our usage of those EBT card admissions go up. And we have a number of other programs that we do to kind of bring people in um, to STEM learning into our organization. What I think is also really important is that the broadening participation work that we're talking about um, and the ways of redefining who is and isn't a STEM learner and what STEM learning looks like also hits on the people who are currently coming to museums. Yeah. So when you talk about inclusion in STEM, one group that is often um, talked about as being underrepresented are girls and women.
1: Yeah.
2: And the interesting dynamic that we have at the Museum of Science is that of our adult audience, 59% are female, because they're caregivers bringing their children. Yeah. And so now we have this interesting dynamic where you have female caregivers who have a history of exclusion from STEM learning, bringing um, their male and female children, and how do we make them feel as learners in the space? Mm. Do we empower them to feel as though um, they can talk about STEM with their children and help their children engage? So it's also about the people who are coming as much as it is, but changing the face of who's coming. And certainly Dale's work, um, she's done a lot of work on gender equity, has been an inspiration for us and helping us to to think about that a little Mm. bit more.
1: It's such an interesting design problem the one you described and I'm sure that uh, that that sits among many many other interesting uh problems that you work on uh but but I love that about um museums and and public institutions uh the idea that we don't have enough opportunity especially um families where I live and the families that typically we serve through our programs at Mouse um If there are two parents at home, typically they're working Um, and uh, to have those opportunities are so golden where we get to to experience things uh, for the first time together and do some of that that sort of co-learning. And so to be thinking about how one experience for uh, for two people where there might be a 30 year age difference uh, is such a, a juicy design problem. I love that
2: yeah and the interesting thing about our audience is that most of them are not coming because they want to learn about STEM they're coming because they want to spend time together as a group Mm. and um, this is a pattern when we ask visitors about motivations for visiting museums we would see this as our number one um, reason given time and time again and we're now doing a national study of all science museums looking at what's the motivation for attending and it's Across across the nation, spending time together as a group, so people are coming um, for social experience. And what we're trying to do is leverage that desire for a social experience, something meaningful to do together as a group, and extend it into a shared STEM learning experience. Yeah, um, and thinking about that levels of empowerment um, and how we can kind of create a more equitable experience within that group is really one of the fun challenges that we have.
1: Yeah. You said um, you said something about uh, EBT cards, and I just want to back up for folks who don't know what that is. Um, the acronym is Electronic Benefit Transfer, and and this is the card that uh, typically, if you are on uh, uh, assistance from uh, state or or uh, otherwise, EBT card is sort of the the debit card um, that you get. Is that the right description?
2: Yes, that is exactly right.
1: Uh, is it- so I, I, it. Emphasizes this point about um, one of the topics that we've been talking a lot about uh, today and certainly on the task force generally is the idea of a STEM ecosystem and um, and and you saying that just sort of brings to mind the idea that uh, the STEM ecosystem involves all kinds of infrastructure, um, and and this is a state funded, correct? The the program that you talked about.
2: No, um, each individual museum funds it on its own.
1: That's amazing. So how do they fund it? Is it from uh, folks who walk through the door, or is it through grants? A
2: variety of of different um, sources. We're. The, um, in Massachusetts, the state funding for museums is, is very low. Yeah. Um, and in fact, the Museum of Science Boston does not receive any ongoing funding from either the city or the state oh, or the federal government. So we have a, a very diverse portfolio of what our income streams are. And this is just something that we've, within that diverse portfolio, we're setting aside um, that funding for. Yeah. So it's kind of us own. We're electing yeah. to, to run this program.
1: Great. So um, Dale... Um my my uh very specific uh question for Dale. I'm I'm fascinated to know we haven't had enough time to talk about your experience. You're now celebrating about 2 years uh at a Children's Museum in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um but you previously contributed so much to this space through the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia. That's right. Those are such different um Geographies, community, you know, uh, sets of communities. Um, I've just been curious to ask you, (laughs) especially in the context of broadening participation, um, what have you learned in the last two years about how that's different in Murfreesboro as opposed to uh, in Philadelphia?
3: That's a great, great question. And certainly there have been. Huge differences in those two two experiences. Uh, Philadelphia was a minority majority city. It was obviously very urban. Uh, Murfreesboro uh, is is not. Uh, is part of the metropolitan area uh, associated with Nashville. But the county it's actually in, Rutherford County, is partly rural as Mm. well as um, more of a suburban kind of urban, nothing like Philadelphia sort of region. Uh, And we are on the edge of multiple counties that are extremely rural. Uh, There are players um, and organizations in the region that are different. There's a very heavy emphasis on the Chambers of Commerce. There's uh, on the United Way sorts of based organizations and their supportive after-school hubs around the state. Uh, the, the structures that I used often in Philadelphia through to, to reach out into the community, uh, multiple library branches, for example. In Philadelphia, there were 50, 51 library branches libraries aren't connected in that same way in, in Tennessee. Um, the, the region, Tennessee is a very long state. Mm -hmm. So, uh, the region we're mostly paying attention to is middle Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's East and West Tennessee, but the middle Tennessee region is really the region in which we are trying to have the biggest impact. So, um, so I think there's, There's a different focus. It's a a, it's a the diversity is is different. It's it's definitely uh, distributed. I think I think the audience focus is primarily um, ranging in socioeconomic status. Although Uh. there are huge populations of minority populations, I think it's I think Tennessee has the second largest Kurd population, for example, in the whole nation. Uh, So. So we as an institution, as a children's museum, are really trying to think intentionally about what does it mean to reach out to communities or to involve communities or to engage with communities that uh, are, are not necessarily part of our visitor yet, visitorship yet? Um, how can we go uh, find ways to reach into rural communities, which are uh, Underserved in all ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, access to our institution is limited. Um, we do have a, uh, a mobile program, a, a school bus, a steam bus that goes out. And we also have other strategies. I think. I think the important, uh, the bigger umbrella piece about thinking about. Um, connecting with people is the same. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's about building community. It's about finding access points. It's about making sure that those access points um, are are uh, uh, develop trust, reflect a trusting relationship. Um, that that there are ways to um, expand on relationships that are there and ready to be yeah. be built upon.
1: Yeah, terrific. I want to come down and visit. Uh... <laughs> Maybe our next task force meeting, we need to be in, in Murfreesboro.
3: That's right. <laughs> so, I think one of the, one of yeah. the opportunities we have um, as a children's museum, which is very different from the science museum experience, um, is sort of twofold. First is that we are not primarily STEM focused. Science, technology, engineering, math, very important. We recognize that. We want to think intentionally about how to support that and how to cultivate uh, both interest and understanding and and capacity for that but but also this is we have a huge opportunity to emphasize family engagement and family learning, family being broadly defined um, and to think about the ways that from the youngest child uh, really in 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 you know, the ankle biters, as a friend of mine would say, you know, just, just starting from the youngest ages, how can, how can we really promote exploration, creativity, imagination, play? And how do we actually position those things as being valued as huge learning opportunities and huge uh, foundational experiences that allow children and families to think ultimately about stem as as either a future career or as something that they can participate in and see all around them yeah so I, I think that's really important and to me the the move from a science museum to a children's museum has really pushed me to try to think about that much more intentionally and to think about the ways in which uh, younger children and everyday sorts of experiences can really uh, build and 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 support that sort of capacity building in families and enhancement of science learning.
1: Yeah. You said a bunch of a bunch of uh, words. Um, creativity, exploration, fun was in there.
3: Fun. I um, may not have said it, but it should have been. D- d- did you say fun? Or did I
1: mention <laughs> I'm that? not sure it um, I'll play it back. Somebody said fun. Um, yes. Anyway, the, uh, these are, um, like, why do we care that, um, why do we care about STEM is one question. Um, another question is, uh, I think there were, for generations, this country has been doing STEM, I'm, I'm air quotes-ing, um, doing STEM where the stuff you described happens in the humanities and happens in the arts, right? Like creativity, uh yeah. Uh, f- you know these <laughs> <Right>. things. <No. laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Um, why do we need to? Why are we so concerned about helping uh, a new generations um, think about STEM? Period. And then um, think about STEM as a, a place for creative exploration, like you described it. Small question. If you can just
3: <laughs> right. So. <sighs> So first of all, um, creativity, imagination, innovation—that's all very much part of science, technology, engineering, math. Um, I think that 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 th- problem-solving, thinking about having questions about the world, uh, is about really being creative and curious and thinking about things. Mm. Uh, that that then leads to exploration and testing and and iteration in a way that that. Um, may lead to more questions, hopefully, for sure, um, but also maybe not not being able to find answers and then struggling and thinking about things. and 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 so it's really a process, uh, a process of inquiry that I. Think is not that different from from a creative artist. to Even learning to read. I mean, some of the skills in young children of reading, trying to understand um, what's happening in a book, mm. uh, thinking about predicting what's going to happen. That's a skill that is actually applicable to science. Thinking about how one creates something on 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 a um, on a wall, a mural. Uh, there's there's. There's thinking and creativity there, but there's also um, thinking about uh, the strategies of of putting together paints or color. Um, there's there's a lot of there is a lot of overlap, mm. and and you know as we expand STEM to STEAM to I've heard other things. Part of what I think people are struggling with is the fact that that many of these skills cross all of these um, domains and. But, but what's important is to think about the fact that science, technology, engineering, and, and math are really all around us. And, and there's evidence of that all around us. And there's a process of exploration and thinking about our world that helps us engage with, with those things.
1: Yeah. How about you guys? Do you have an answer, uh, other answers to that question? Things that, that uh, Dale left out?
2: around what is stem and its ties to imagination do and we creativity care? Yeah, why do we care
1: is the question why
2: do we care about stem as yeah. a whole yeah i think cecilia had a great point earlier when she talked about the fact that stem is everywhere in our lives and at some point in time each of us really needs to be a STEM learner and needs to engage science in our decision-making. That is just, it's a given in this day and age, whether it's because um, you have a loved one who is undergoing medical treatment and you need to understand it more, or you're finding that the air quality in your community is not um, healthy for you and your family, or you, you're concerned about... Um, The nuclear power plant um, that's in your community, there's so many different things um, that we need to know about in order to um, make decisions about everyday life, and it ties to STEM. Mm -hmm. So in our museum, we have an exhibit um, called Provocative Questions, where we put out there questions that are tied to social issues that involve a knowledge of STEM. And we're trying to do a few different things. One is to get people to think about the stem in their decision making, but also broaden their understanding of the ways that stem is applicable to that decision making. So, for example, um, right now there's a lot of discussion about um, CTE and football playing, and kind of the this connection between long-term mental health and playing football at a young age. Mm. And so we pose the question to our visitors of should contact sports uh, for children under the age of 14 be banned Hmm.
1: and provocative it is provocative in my house it's very provocative (laughs)
2: Um, in my house it's very provocative (laughs) and you know i almost didn't want to ask the question because So, getting personal, um, my son loves hockey at a very young age, Mm -hmm. and it was like, oh, I don't want to ask the question because I don't want to have to say to him no, right? Because the more I know, then the more it just becomes um, a more difficult. um, But what we were able to do is we were looking at not just the evidence around brain injuries, but also the evidence around, can you change the rules of the game? What does that mean? Or what's the evidence around um, team sports and the connections between concussions and team mm. sports versus individual You did this sports. with your
1: son or this was in the exhibit? This is
2: in the exhibit. Okay. So we presented all this different evidence and it's kind of interesting because team sports tend to be, participation in team sports tend to be correlated with decreases in risky adolescent behavior. Yes. Um, and so then it's like, okay, so the risk of a brain injury versus risk of, you know, drinking and driving. Right.
1: What's what's what all these pick your poison.
2: Right. And all these things need to be factored into our decision making. Um, and thinking about all that different STEM evidence, integrating it and then also tying it to our social values. You know, what's important to us? Um, what's important to me as a parent in terms of what type of life I want for my son. Yeah. Um, and so we pose all of that um in an exhibit format for visitors to consider. We find that they engage in rich discussions around it, and we just find that many people came away, like I did, just from the process of developing an exhibit, more in a standpoint of maybe, right? Which means I'm not ready yet to make this decision. Mm. Um, which means I'm engaged in what's called active, open-minded thinking, mm. right? So. That's just one example of the rich ways that STEM comes into your life, even just as a parent of, should I let my son play hockey? Yeah. Um, And so we all need to be knowledgeable about STEM. Um, And the more we broaden this idea of what it means to be a STEM learner, um, and it's not just being a a white coat lab scientist, but it's there, it's being a mom. Um, Then we start to broaden who wants to participate in STEM and who sees its meaning.
1: Yeah. I'm I'm curious uh before before I move move along uh, um how old your son can I ask he's 5 5 and have you have you answered the question of of why maybe hockey's not the best or where you would prefer he spends his time
2: uh you know, that's a really hard, I'm still investigating it, Yeah. right? So he's in skating lessons, Yeah. full disclosure, right? Um, we're letting him skate. He's also playing baseball um, and he picks up a hockey stick at home. Yeah. And so, um, and golf, Yeah. So even though that's not a team sport as much. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, okay, let's leave it open for now because we really need to look at this. And how do the rules, what I don't know is um, it does look like some rules of the sport can change whether or not you have head injuries at a mm. younger age, um, and so how are those rules going to change um, when he would get up to say high school? Because right now, no contact until you're 14. Does that change in 10 years? I yeah. don't know. Yeah. Um, so we're still investigating it and looking at it. But um, that's also the point: is that science is an ongoing process. Yep. Right. Our views of the world are continually changing because of science, and we need to leave ourselves open to that.
1: Yeah. That's an interesting one. It hits home for me. We, I live, uh, adjacent to a football field and so all kinds of things and baseball fields. So I'm, I'm near sort of the sports complex for the high school. And, um, so my son and I, the girls as well, but they're a little younger. So we're not yet sort of out after dusk, but, uh, a lot of times I'll get home and I take my son up to the fields. Once the girls have gone to bed and, uh, there's baseball up there, there's football practice up there, there's lacrosse up there. Uh, and he has all these questions and, and his mom and I talk a Lot about whether or not to support his interest in football, um, the the quick end to what I'm what I'm saying is um, by far the most interesting progress we made as parents on this is um, when we spoke to him who's eight he's eight. Um, uh at, w- like we were talking to each other in a way uh in that we were transparent about the fact that hey there's some data that relates to um uh concussion and um and seizure disorders and uh that was by far the most interesting uh you know when when we tried to dance and, and the the interesting part about this is that um i think young people are at a moment where um inquiry is so um inquiry can be so sort of real time and, um, and these questions can be amplified as moments to sort of continue to discover and, and realize things about your world and make choices. And, and, um, I just find that it's so fascinating for my son going through some of those kinds of, uh, what did you provocative questions? Um, we're learning together all the time and the more, um, the more I can model for him that I don't, I don't know, or here's where I'm working on an answer because science is still working on an answer. Um, the more interested he becomes,
2: and this is so fascinating because this is where I think museums have the greatest potential is to facilitate those kinds of family conversations. Yeah. and we have um, researchers who are cognitive development researchers who are studying children's learning in um, the science museum context as a way of better understanding how children learn to think like scientists and acquire scientific knowledge. And one of the researchers is really focused on testimony. Like, how you know, how do we learn through what other people say? And she's been studying the development of what's called, you know, causal reasoning. Mm. You know, the way that you understand, like, Something is not just because I said so, but because here's these underlying mechanisms that I'm aware of. Mm -hmm. And um, what she's finding is some really powerful conversations when you have certain types of activities between parents and children that demonstrate that type of causal reasoning. And what you're doing with your son is you're saying, you can't play football because I said so. Right. You're saying, here's the evidence and you're modeling that. Mm -hmm. And the more we can help people to see that it's not that they have to have the right answer, but that the important part of science is engaging in the discussion, mm-hmm. I think the more people will begin to see that they have a role to play. Too often, when it, to, um, when it comes to who's included in STEM, that if people think it's about the right answer and there's someone who knows it and I don't, it doesn't feel very inclusive. But if we can better communicate that there's lots of questions and no one really has the right answer on the exact thing you should do in this exact context Um, and that part of science is continuing to learn, I think we'll get a broader um, public involved in, in science learning.
1: Cecilia, you were going to jump in.
2: Yeah. I mean, and actually just to jump off a little bit or build on
4: Christine's point, it's interesting this idea of the way that potentially we've framed who gets to do science, right? Or what does that mean? So the fact, so so, just as Christine said, just the fact that you can say, oh, wait, we don't actually have an answer, but you can engage in this conversation sort of changes that whole frame and dynamic already. But I guess I was going to add that, you know, we could also think about why STEM um in a broad way and i would argue that part of why stem is why not it's about the the richness of being a human being right, right? so i wonder if you mark would ask that question about why music or Mm -hmm. why art right and I think the answer to why music or why art would be because it's a human expression Mm -hmm. it's part of what it means to engage in your world and I think you can think about STEM in that way it is one kind of lens or one kind of approach um, to being in your world to being curious about your world to exploring your world and the relationship that you have or the relationship that you have with others in that world and so it's really about that right so some of the some of my favorite conversations with my nieces and nephews, for example, have been those I wonder about. And it's not that it is at the exclusion um, of art or, or, or mm-hmm. music, but it's really just a different way of, of having um, an experience. Yeah. And sometimes you can even meld those, right? I think that Dale talked about STEAM, which is the, you add the arts to that. STEM mm-hmm. acronym. And so I think that that's important for us to bring to the conversation is this idea of um, bringing our entire selves and what it means to be a human being yeah. and STEM as part of that expression.
1: Yeah, uh, I guess what so I w- I would ask the question to a mathematician or a musician, uh, why um, mostly just to be provocative and, yeah. and have them answer. But I think the thing that's important um with respect to STEM as it's different from any one of those individual subjects is that we've made an acronym out of these subjects in particular, and it happened, we did do a little bit of where did STEM come from in a previous um, task force meeting. Uh, And uh, we've worked a little bit on um, a series of of documents and tools that I wanna talk about before we go. and in, in that we did a lot of of discovery about where stem comes from and and you know in the there's definitely a lot of political motivation behind the sort of acronym ising can i do that just add an <laughs> ising um of stem and and there's definitely um there was a confluence of a few things, but it certainly wasn't just educator driven that uh, where STEM emerged from. Um, and so I asked the question, why STEM? Why is it important? Because um, I wonder if the acronym is still important and uh, and and how this group feels about that. I certainly have my own opinions about what the I think there have been affordances to it. I also think that sometimes uh, it it might hold us back a little bit um, but uh, I, I want that's what I wonder is, is what's important about seeing those disciplines together and sort of working on a task force for broadening participation in those um, specifically?
4: Yeah. And I, I, I ask maybe Jamie to also weigh in on this, but it's it's an in, you point to a very interesting thing around the the partly political aspects of it, partly just purely in terms of the way the disciplines of the sciences um, have sort of unfolded. Part of it is, frankly, funding, the way that those funding streams have come in. So I think those have created, in some ways, this somewhat uh, loose idea of how you group these together as disciplines that... um, That makes sense often. And I think we've discussed this a lot in this particular task force is going back to this idea of broadening participation. Well, what is STEM and what does access mean? Mm -hmm. And is it always a pipeline issue of career or is it something else? Yeah. And so I think uh, you're right in that it is a double edged sword in that in many ways. Um, having this loose group for a number of reasons has allowed conversation about advancing um, and engaging in STEM as something that um, we can talk about um, and something we can work towards. And in some ways it is um, it does hold us back because um, it in many ways maybe artificially creates these boundaries, you know, going back to this whole arts music um, Uh, Mm -hmm. science Mm -hmm. those boundaries may be much more fluid but just the way that practically um, the fields and the funding and the policy issues and the politics have all sort of converged it's created this kind of um, almost um, artificial idea that it's this thing is cohesive here and then the arts are over here or this other thing is here do you want to
0: Yeah, this is super interesting. Thank you. I'm really learning a lot from listening to everyone. Um, Maybe one aspect that I've been thinking about a lot that um, we haven't specifically touched on is, uh, and again, STEM becoming sort of this acronym that now is ubiquitous and being driven by a lot of different forces and um, seen and unseen, as it were, and for very good reasons that you all have um, shared uh, about it being part of a rich life and how it empowers us to have better lives and to be more thoughtful and um, certainly though I think once STEM well not just once it became an acronym but there are people that are driving a STEM agenda or, or advocating for STEM um, for less than altruistic idealistic holistic reasons mm. right I mean there's definitely some energy behind STEM that's just about you know that's what's needed in the workforce for a certain uh, sector of 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 uh yeah. corporate whatever Interest, you know you sure. could you could you could go into that um but but I also think and i, I don 't know if this is um, you know this is an anecdotal observation, but it seems to be borne out by um just conventional wisdom in the bubble as you say mark but um I think there's a feeling that in our society in the United States anyway, somehow these topics don't have um, the place in our culture that we think it should mm-hmm. i mean it is something about it there being being taboo to even talk about or you know in a say socially you know it's like okay to say talk about a lot of things but politics and <laughs> sometimes mm-hmm. is not welcome and 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 stem because of the reason you know it's you know there's a type of person that does stem and knows about stem and can speak thoughtfully or intelligently about stem when actually as all my colleagues here have said you know stem is part of everyone's life in different ways and and may not be identified as such and realized so i think it's it's place in our culture is somehow feels feels not right to me at least in in terms of being um just part of cultural life that's sort of accepted I mean, across the board.
2: I would agree with that. I think one of the interesting dynamics that we have is that um, part of our cultural understanding of STEM is that the people who are scientists and engineers are perceived to be too smart for the average person, right? And, so, um, and yet, um, we also have this challenge of feeling like not enough people want to go into STEM disciplines to support the workforce that we need right and as much as we put it onto a pedestal that if we more we put on a pedestal the less likely we are to get all the people that we need be part of the stem enterprise right um and so that's not to say that it doesn't take um any discipline to be great in your discipline takes incredible intelligence and hard work and um and discipline but it's important for us to remember that um it it's there it's present it's all the time um you know, my uh, father's in the HVAC industry and he was always teaching me about science and engineering because that's what he needed to do to, you know, design systems for homes, to fix systems from homes. And, um, it is there it's present in all these different industries. And the more we start to acknowledge that, um, the more I think we'll be able to see more people engaged Mm. in STEM. And it's just something for us to be thinking about.
1: Yeah.
3: And one of the things that, that, uh, Lynn Dierke and I found in our study of girls in in science was what counts as science is often very narrow, hmm. and so
1: sorry to yeah. them to them or or to
3: that so yeah. so we we looked at a um, hundred um, close to two hundred. Um, resp- we had two, close to 200 responses from from girls now women but girls at the time who who talked about uh, what they whether they were in a stem career mm. and only seventeen percent said they were but when we actually coded by their jobs and their careers uh, something like forty seven percent may have been forty nine but but close to fifty percent of them were in stem related careers and so when we then followed up with some interviews and, and conversations with with um, these Folks, they, they often, so it, nurses will actually tell you that they're not in STEM professions. Uh, people who work in technology, maybe even supporting the technology infrastructure of a movie or um, present data from a, a librarian who prevents, presents data from the medical school about, you know, things that they got, information they gathered about on, on a drug or whatever it was. Um, they all didn't somebody, see themselves. Somebody who
1: works in HVAC.
3: In, in HVAC, right? And so part of it is that there's an elitist sort of idea and a narrow sort of idea about what counts as STEM. And that's very problematic, right? So so if, in fact, you have a very um, uh, more open mind to what can be science or technology or engi- engineering and math, and, and they are four separate things. And I think that that needs to be considered as well, right? So for many of these girls, now women that we talk to, math was a huge barrier, a concern about math, discomfort with math, lack of confidence. That was a huge barrier Mm. to participation. And that was unfortunate because I think that while I think math is very important and especially important for certain fields, it's not it's not, you can be in certain fields in science and do certain STEM um, jobs or hobbies without necessarily having that math ahead of time. You can sort of, you know, we all learn things on the ground, right? We all, so so I think that in some cases, there are these presumed barriers to participation that have evolved over time that actually, again, one thing builds on the other, right? So, oh, we can't do, STEM because we don't have math and we don't have math So we can't do the, you know, so it's, it's, and then physics and engineering are, you know, very much math oriented, but there may be other fields where probability, mathematics as it relates to probability, for example, you know, that's something um, that's a different kind of math that mm-hmm. might be you need in trajectories or whatever. So it's just math is as diverse as science is diverse as technology is, you know, so, as engineering. And so there are so many access points. If we could just find ways to let people realize that there are all these moments and all these ways that they could engage that, that are meaningful for them. And ways that they can can plug into their own strengths. and I think it would be, um, it would be much, very helpful.
1: Yeah, I have about a hundred different conversations I'd like to have with you guys. If you would <laughs> buckle up, I'm gonna order in some supper. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I know. I know everybody has some place to go. Cecilia, go ahead. You were going to jump in.
4: No, I just wanted to tie. I think what Jamie and Dale are talking about, because it it actually then becomes and part of what this broadening t- participation task force, I think, has been, uh, I guess, illuminating, teasing out, and then um, thinking about is this issue of what, how, ha- how is it that um, science has gained this this sort of reputation of being elitist for a very specific kind of person that culturally maybe it's placed on a pedestal or kind of only certain kind of people do this right and we could probably sit here for hours and deconstruct why that is but I think that the piece for to bring it back to the task force is that that really is something that we we're, we're understanding and we we're, we're sort of placing and naming very clearly that that is part of what um our task is to change or to begin at least to have conversations about and to consider if we really are um, for those of us who are working in one way or another in that field if we are really going to change the relationship to stem um, and in many ways i think we've been in the task force thinking oh, it's incumbent on us to figure out how we do that right what are how do we change that conversation? What are the ways in which how do we design experiences or um, talk about these issues um, so that that begins to change?
1: Yeah. And I, so I have no way of asking this question and not sounding disingenuous, because I think people who have listened to any of these uh, of this show know um how I feel about these things, but, but I'm going to ask anyway, just to, to hopefully, uh, bring out your answer. But so, uh, so why, um, for anyone listening who, uh, what, what that person who this is, I'm not sure, but for anyone listening, who's thinking what was wrong with the old way, right? What, uh, why isn't it a, um, white man with white hair in a white lab coat, uh, that we task with asking the hard questions, uh, you know, and answering them for us. Like, wh- what's wrong with the old way?
3: How much time do you have? <laughs> I was just going to say, from from thinking about it from a gendered perspective, look back and see um, all the medical studies that have been done over the years. And all of a sudden, as we start to think about the fact that Oh, wow! They were only done with men or or Caucasians or white men or we we start to realize that it's really important to have different perspectives, so you know heart attacks that's something that everybody in the world has to wonder about at some point or knows someone right so heart attacks present differently mm. for men and women right so so that's fairly new information um, so you know and that some of some of the findings. In science, come from um, sort of um, the back door. They come from people whose perspective wasn't necessarily always at the table. Uh, when I think about learning science in school, I think about memorizing things. You know, uh, you know what is photosynthesis? What you know, even even though there were labs to think about mitosis and meiosis in cells, it it was really. When the opportunities to get your hands on things, to do dissections or to do, to explore, um, I I learned after, actually in the workplace when I was working in the lab, I had a, a colleague say, you know, there was a machine at work, you know, look in the hole, figure it out and, and truthfully that was something no one had really said to me about mm. that, maybe both as a woman and some you know, with the equipment and I looked at it and I took it apart and I fixed it. And that was an empowering moment. I went home that night and fixed my roommate's stereo, you know mm. <laughs> but but those moments is that are true? Yeah, it is true. That's <laughs> it is I true. Well I tried to fix my stereo <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know if it still works now. So um but but no that is very true. Um and, and I think that what we're doing you know that was many years ago my high school science i think that as we look at ways to help people think about science help people realize that that they can that engaging in daily um challenges problem solving those sorts of skills that they build a confidence base so that they can do more and and explore more and learn more yeah um that's critical
1: yeah anyone else
0: I think uh, what you refer to also as the old way, and yeah. I just did my air quotes. Um, the old way, as told to us the way we understand it, also does not reveal all of the truth of the trajectory of the evolution of knowledge. <laughs> uh, there have been other... Types of people over many generations who have contributed to that knowledge, who were in the position of telling the story in the way that the white men in the white lab coats were able to. That so there's there's always been an aspect of diversity in the creation and doing of science. Um, not enough, of course. I don't think any of us would think, but um, what was not uh, dominant culture science as presented the way you're describing the old way. Um, it was part of how how the story was told and who was telling it.
1: Here's why I'm glad we're recording this is because I'm going to, uh, say it back and, uh, and, and it, it should be a t-shirt if it's not already. I think what you said was awesome. (laughs) Um, like I really think somebody just ran out and, and made t-shirts of what you just said. Um, so Cecilia, before I left us on a cliffhanger about what is what does new science look like do you have do you have an example for me
4: um, new science well, I think that that Dale and Christine actually gave already in their examples some ways in which what new science looks like mm-hmm. it's um, it's asking about it's it's the curiosity question it's the I wonder question whether that's with your children or your friends or you're walking down you know uh, the path and you see a tree and that takes you down Hmm. some interesting inquiry about plants or what so forth. I guess that more formally, I was thinking when you asked that question, something like a citizen science program, yeah. right? Where, or it's a project that may be very driven by a particular community that's looking at a, a question, whether that's air quality or water quality <clears throat> or some other issue in their community, and comes together and uses a science to um figure out what's actually happening and that. then potentially to advocate for change. Um so I would say that new science looks like um a community uh empowered uh aspects. It is about um relevance. It is about something that is meaningful. Mm-hmm. Those would be some of the qualities that I would say um Our characteristics of the way that we could be thinking about science engagement and the authenticity of what that engagement could look like or is.
1: That's a a beautiful place for us to end. I love that. Everything that you just said. I'm going to make another. This is going to be a really (laughs) epic (laughs) T-shirt. um guys thank you so much i have uh more conversation i'm going to be having from uh the task force tomorrow about some of the stuff we're doing and what we hope uh some of the outputs will be in the meantime i could have this conversation for hours you guys have been amazing thank you so much uh for doing it and for doing this work and everything you uh contribute every day outside of your role on the uh the task force when you're wearing your cape For more info about advertising with us, charitable sponsorship, or if you have show ideas you want to share with me, find me on Twitter at M.A. Lesser. No Such Thing is produced by me, Mark Lesser, a learner like you, and our show notes can be found at nosuchthingpodcast.org. The tracks in this podcast were produced by Leroy Tindy, a guest in episode one, an Olympic fully clothed hotel pool swimmer. Find him on SoundCloud at Air Tindy Beats. This show would not be possible without support from the good people at Mouse, a national youth development nonprofit that believes in technology as a force for good. Find us online at mouse.org.